few weeks ago, we ended our introductory remarks. Now, they weren't the end of our complete introduction here, but they were the end of our introductory remarks a few weeks back on the doctrine of the Trinity with a brief discussion of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. And you'll notice on your handout that we're going to look at a few phrases here at the beginning uh, just to kind of give you an, an overview of this handout today that I tried to put together, um, there are four different sections on this, the principle of sola scriptura and the church's speech about the triune God, the church's ordering of her praise of the triune God, and then on the back, uh, preparation for hearing the Bible's grammar about the triune God, and then learning the Bible's grammar of the triune God. Now, so those four sections we're going to be covering, I really doubt we're going to cover all four of those today. Um, we touched on these first two last time, but it was very brief and cursory, and I want to come back and, and dig a little more in those. So my hope is that we can cover this first page today. Um, the back page, uh, we'll, we'll see uh, what, our time, what our time frame is like. When we opened up the idea of sola scriptura, we gave as kind of an introductory definition uh, that sola scriptura points to the scripture being the supreme standard by which all other standards or authorities are to be assessed or to be judged. And this is not to discount the validity of other sources of revelation, like natural, general revelation, was rather simply to say that there is a place at which all other authorities must ultimately bow, and that this is at the feet of Scripture. Now, to stress this, we made use of a few other phrases. As you're looking there on your sheet, you'll see those phrases there, the norma normans and the norma normata. Richard Muller, in his Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, defines norma normans. He says, this is the standardizing norm. It's applied to the Bible. It's applied to Scripture as that norm standing behind the standardized confessions. And what this means is that Scripture serves as a norming or standardizing function in relation to all other norms or all other standards. At times, we find this principle phrased as norma normans non normata. Now, that's also there on your sheet. We could translate that the norm that norms and is not normed. So if I want to cut a board at home, and I'm going to be in my shed, and I'm working on some, some lumber, and I want to cut a length of board that's two feet. I pull out my tape measure. I don't pull out the Bible for this, all right? Um, <clears throat> the Bible is not the uh, Norman Normans of the length of a board, all right? It's not that, all right? But my tape measure in my shed is... I don't get my tape measure out, measure two feet, and then go, ah, I'm not sure. I think I need another tape measure to measure my tape measure to make sure it's really 
two feet that I'm cutting here, all right? Uh, in my shed, at least as far as my shed goes, the uh, ultimate standard for measurement is my tape measure. And I whip out that little Stanley, and I measure that thing, and we're good, all right? And I have about six or seven tape measures floating around, but I really just grab one. And that's it's good enough for me. Now, the purist might sit there and say, but there's that little play at the end of a tape measure. You're going to lose a millimeter here or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, that's not what we're talking about. Just basically, we're using a ruler to measure other things. That's kind of what we're talking about here. The scripture is the norm that norms all other norms, and it itself is not normed by anything beyond itself. Now, this leaves the creeds and confessions to be referred to on the sheet you have there as the norma normata. Muller says, this is a standardizing norm. It is a norm. It is a standard. It's applied to churchly confessions insofar as they set forth the truths of Scripture. All right? So I may think I have a board that's two feet long. And maybe, you know, to speed things up, maybe you cut one board that's two feet long, and then you start using that board as the norm to measure all the other cuts you're going to make. What happens two or three cuts in, you find your first norm was not really two feet. It was one foot, 11 inches, or 11 and three quarters inches. And you're like, oh, great, I've got to go back. I've got to recut my original one. I've got to measure everything. Then I've got to find out the magical way to add a quarter inch to all these boards that I've cut, which never seems to work very well. So the creeds and confessions do serve as norms, but they do so only insofar as they set forth the truths of Scripture, which is the supreme norm. Speaking of the Reformers' view of sola scriptura, Calvin had some interchange with an Italian cardinal by the name of Jacopo Sadoletto. And in a letter that Calvin wrote to Sadoletto, he said, we hold that the word of God alone lies beyond the sphere of our judgment, and that fathers and councils, from which creeds and confessions were developed, fathers and councils are of authority only insofar as they accord with the rule of the word. We still give to councils and fathers such rank and honor as it is meet for them to hold under Christ. All this serves the purpose of highlighting at this point for us that when the church formulates her theological views of God and all things in relation to God, it is Scripture that must reign supreme for her. Or in the words of our own confession, it says in chapter 1, the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions, and ancient writers, or opinions of ancient writers, Doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and in whose sentence we are to rest, it goes on to indicate, is the Scripture alone. So those are just some initial thoughts about how, um, how Scripture is to, uh, this principle of sola scriptura is to regulate, we might say, the speech of the church about God. So with those things in mind about the nature of our theological formulation and the ultimate reference point being the scripture, 
We turned our attention last time to what we termed the ordering of the church's praise of the triune God. So that's the second major section there on your handout, the church's ordering of her praise of the triune God. Now before we kind of move on to that, um, questions or comments um, that you want to make about that first section there? Yeah, Tom. Sure. Well, it is true that we do have to interpret the Scripture, um, but fundamentally, we have to agree or at least understand for us what is the authority that we're going to rest in eventually, and uh, that for us is going to be the Scripture. Like you say, though, we do have to interpret that Scripture, and uh, maybe hermeneutical principles will help guide us there. And Scripture itself gives us much guidance on how to how to do those things. But yeah, anybody else? All right. Well, let's uh, let's consider this second section here: the church's ordering of her praise of the Triune God. Last time we just kind of introduced the the headings, all right, and didn't say much about them. So let me just remind you here. Uh, to this little work by Scott Swain, The Trinity, An Introduction. I think I've mentioned this book. I don't know that I've actually brought it, uh, but this is the book that I was talking about a few weeks back, and it's just called The Trinity, An Introduction by Scott Swain, Short Studies in Systematic Theology. Uh, it's a very helpful, accessible book, about 130 pages or so, uh, so you can, if you want to look at that after... Sunday school, we can, we can have it up here for you. Um, so the three headings that, that Swain gives, well, the three sections he talks about, I've put under these three headings. Scriptural fluency, sanctifying formation, and satisfying fellowship. All right? Scriptural fluency, sanctifying formation, satisfying Fellowship. There's kind of a natural order and progression that we're going to kind of move through in looking at these three sections. And in looking, looking at them, I'm going to consider them as, as kind of phases, all right? Phases. And what I want to do with that term is I want to notice or I want to indicate a sense of progression, but also a sense of dependency and interrelation. So in other words, uh, one has to work through phase one, scriptural fluency, to move to phase two, that of sanctifying formation. So <clears throat> then moving to phase two in no way means that phase one can be forgotten. Phase one, scriptural fluency, is going to give us what we're going to call the grammar of the Trinity. All right, And if you don't know the grammar of something, it's very difficult to to come to a, a sense of understanding and, and formation. Hopefully we'll, we'll try to explain that a little more in a moment. Um, so as we move from one phase to the next, uh, we're not going to leave the previous phase, and we may end up kind of going back and forth in our, uh, 
in our movement. Um, let's consider phase one, scriptural fluency. Swain says this, uh, page 18 in his book, he says, because it focuses on God and all things in relation to God, as these realities are revealed in Holy Scripture, systematic theology aims at making us more fluent readers of Holy Scripture. Now, we've already indicated that this fluency will increase. Uh, we're going to consider the grammar of the Bible in speaking about God, and we're going to consider a variety of texts in the Scripture that are going to be categorized under text types, types of texts when we're thinking about God. Swain would say here that there is a basic grammar of Scripture's Trinitarian discourse that is woven throughout the variety of different types of texts in the Bible. Let me try to illustrate this a little bit, all right? Suppose your child, or if you don't have a child, just suppose a child, all right? Eager to learn to read and write, but had no discipline, no patience to learn the basics of English grammar. How successful would they be at writing? So the believer who wants to know the deep things of God or thinks that they do without being willing to pause and learn the basics of scriptural teaching about God will not progress very far. Too often men make up their own language in speaking about God. What's God like to you? You ever heard that one? All right. It's a great one in Sunday school classes with little kids. All right. The teacher looks at them and says, well, Johnny, what is God like to you? All right, remember those things? God's like a Coke. He's the real thing. Remember that? Oh, yeah, all right, yeah, yeah, okay. Wah, 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 wah. Okay, bad ways, all right? What's God like to you? Or even better, Sally, why don't you draw a picture for us about what you think God is like? That gets really bad really quick, okay? Yeah, yeah. So, God is not the man upstairs, God is not the big guy in the sky, and as Christians, you and I are not free to use language like this of God. For that matter, we're not free to use any language of God that is not authorized by the Scripture. We're not free just to make up things about God. Now, I can hear maybe a thought that comes in your mind right now. What about Trinity? Because Trinity's what? It's not a word found where? In the Bible. You know, the word Bible's not found in the Bible, but that's a whole other point, right? So I, I tried to say it uh, in this particular way on purpose. We're not authorized or we're not allowed to use any language that is not authorized by his word. So if I can, let me just make a little additional comment about that, um, about using language that is authorized by the Bible. This is not to say that we cannot use words to refer to God like Trinity, like omniscient, like omnipotent. These are words that are not found in the Bible, all right? In fact, we ought to use terms such as these, when referring to our Lord, and I believe it's unwise not to do so. I remember about 20, 
20, 20, 25 years ago, um, had a guy that wanted to join the church, and we were going through the confession. I was very new to the confession. This was probably about 20, almost 25 years ago. And um, he was very uncomfortable with the word Trinity. Uh, he came out of the worldwide church of God. Maybe you are familiar with that, with uh, um, oh, guy's last name is Armstrong. I forget his first name. I'm sorry? Possible. I can't remember the first name. But Armstrong was the founder of the Worldwide Church of God. And uh, this, uh, this, this man was very uncomfortable with the term Trinity. And we had, you know, long talks about that. And, and uh, I, at the time, I just kind of thought, well, you know, maybe he's just... Maybe he's just struggling because it has these connections to this cult that he came out of or whatever. Uh, it was a very anti-Trinitarian type cult. And, um, well, he ended up joining the church, and uh, long story short, um, it, it proved problematic, right? Uh, not in his rejection of the doctrine, because I don't know that he ever really rejected the doctrine, uh, but, but he was a very staunch biblicist, and he really had a hard time with confessions uh, at large. And he had a hard time with any kind of, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way, uh, authority that was not explicitly tied to a text in the Bible. So he had a real strong view of, you know, it's got to be the Bible verse. I need a Bible verse for these kinds of things. So this came to play not only in his doctrine of the Trinity, it came to play in his doctrine of the Christian Sabbath, it came to play in his doctrine of the church itself, and just it just kind of spiraled. And I didn't recognize it at the time that... Uh, that his problem with the doctrine or the term Trinity was actually an indication of a greater problem that he had that kind of fleshed itself out in just all kinds of other areas. Um, so <clears throat> I think we ought to use terms like this when referring to our Lord, and it's unwise not to do so. Terms are authorized and therefore necessitated by use of God to use of God by Scripture when what they are intending to convey is what Scripture is intending to convey. We're not, we're not adding to the Bible by formulating the doctrine of the Trinity or by using Trinitarian-type language to refer to God. To charge us with error when using words not found in Scripture to refer to God is to be guilty of what is often termed a word concept fallacy. There's no word for that in the Bible, therefore the concept is what? concept is not there either. Uh, Travis Montgomery wrote an article recently for a group called the Center for Baptist Renewal that is up in Oklahoma, comes out of Oklahoma Baptist University with, uh, he, he, he talks about theological jargon, all right, terminology. Montgomery says this, he says, consider the benefit of theological jargon. Now, he mentions credo-baptism or the word trinity, which, is, which are both absent from the Bible. He said the concept is sometimes applied in single verses, like Matthew 28, 19. Baptize what? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But ultimately, the doctrine of the Trinity is not founded entirely on these kinds of specific instances, but as, and he's drawing here from the Westminster Confession, it's very similar to ours, as a good and necessary consequence of the whole council of Scripture. This being the case, the Trinity is present in all God-breathed Scripture, even where the doctrine of the Trinity is not directly implied or explicated. There is no single word in any particular part of the Bible that describes and defends the truly biblical doctrine of the Trinity. 
Thus, a canonical discourse analysis, that's what he's calling for, a canonical discourse analysis necessitates the extra-biblical technical term trinity. Theological jargon is necessitated by a sound study of Scripture and for fidelity to Scripture's author. So this theological jargon or verbiage is a safeguard for us in speaking about and speaking to our God and is part and parcel of the grammar of Holy Scripture, strengthening our scriptural fluency. It builds our vocabulary. It builds our syntax. It helps us understand how, what words to use, how to relate those words, how to put them all together, and how to speak coherently, all right? Um, God displays his glory for us to see throughout the pages of the Word of God, and we must be able to speak its language if we want to approach him in a way that he has revealed himself. Let me say that again. God displays his glory for us to see throughout the pages of the Word of God, and we must be able to speak its language if we want to approach him in the way he has revealed himself. We can't just come up with our own language that's not authorized by the Bible, all right? We can't just come up with ideas and concepts. Words do what? Words communicate things. Words matter. And if I don't use the right words and the right, I'm going to communicate the wrong kinds of concepts. Now, we move from scriptural fluency to what we're going to call here sanctifying formation, all right? Swain notes here that because the God who reveals himself in holy scriptures or scripture also writes its message on our hearts by the Holy Spirit, systematic theology seeks to serve the Spirit's work of forming in us the image of Jesus Christ. Thus, he goes on, theology will shape our capacities for receiving and responding to the blessed Trinity as he presents himself to us in his word, directing our faith to receive the triune God as our God, to hold fast to the triune God in love, and to call upon the triune God in prayer, proclamation, and praise. I think at this point it's, it's, it's easier to see kind of getting somewhere. It's not just grammar, it's not just syntax, it's not just words, it's not just definitions, dissecting and diagramming sentence structure to kind of get smarter or be able to win a theological argument. Rather, here, we're pointing to and discovering the transformative nature of Scripture in that it is moving us closer and closer toward the God we seek to praise. We need terms. We need the right terms, the right words. We need a right understanding of how those words and terms relate together that we might come to understand and know more about this God, and in coming to know more about this God, we're being shaped more and formed more into the image of Christ. So think with me, we're going to look at some texts, all right? Recall the nature of Scripture itself. Scripture performs a sanctifying and preparatory function. I'll say that again. I want you to think about those words with me for a moment. Scripture performs a sanctifying, meaning that it is, it is forming and shaping me and setting me apart from what I was into what I need to be, and it performs a preparatory function, 
getting me ready for something, all right? By way of our understanding of and the Spirit's application of the Word to our hearts, we are shaped into the image of the Lord, and we are molded. Think of the image of a potter with the clay. We are molded and shaped to be made ready vessels, houses of honor, that we might welcome our Lord and rejoice in Him with worship and with praise. Think about a few texts. Hebrews 4, let's write them up here on the board, and then you can uh, you know, look them up. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, right? John 17, 17. We're going to look at several here, and there are more. We could. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20, and Colossians 3, I think it is. Yeah, Colossians 3. Oops, sorry, 16 through 17, all right? Now, again, there's a lot we could look at, but these are just four or five I want to touch on. Did I? I said five. What did I miss? Oh, Psalm 19. We'll, we'll sneak this one in here. Psalm 19, 7 through 9. That's a squeaky marker. All right. Listen to Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. We, we don't have time to unpack them all, but just kind of let them mull over in your mind for a moment. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And it's a very basic understanding here. Verse 12 is saying that Scripture is preparing us to do what? To meet with the God of verse 13. And it moves easily from Scripture to God himself. Scripture is the word of God. It's God's voice. It's God's breath. It's God coming to us. And the word of God pierces and divides and distinguishes. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why? Because we're not hidden from its gaze we're not hidden from God's gaze. It lays us out open and laid bare of the eyes with whom we have to do. We, as creature, have to do with God, creator, and scripture performs this function of laying us out and helping us pierce the very depths of who we are and making us ready to meet with God. Think about John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth your word is what? Your word is truth. The word of God has a sanctifying effect. It, it, it shapes and molds us and makes us like Christ, making us the kind of people that are ready to meet with God. Psalm 19, 7 through 9, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Do you hear the, the preparatory and formative work there of the word? The precepts of the Lord are right. They're rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Now, I probably didn't wait long enough for you to turn to those, but I do want to wait long enough for you to turn to Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. So take those two texts and keep your fingers on them. 
going to read both of them, then I want to come back and, uh, and make a comparison. Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, and Colossians 3, 16 to 17. Well, Colossians, or Ephesians 5, 18, we're going to start with the phrase. It says, be the direct, the positive command, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Okay? Then, don't lose that one, flip over to Colossians 3. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now let's think about these two passages. Ephesians chapter 5 centers around the work of the Spirit. The Spirit that is filling the believer, is controlling the believer, is shaping the believer, is moving the believer to certain activities. All right? That's Ephesians 5. Similarly, in Colossians chapter 3, it centers around the Word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And as the Word dwells in us richly, dwells in us richly, it shapes us, and it moves us to certain activities and certain engagements. We see here a similar uh, effect of both word and what? Spirit. The two working together, kind of overlapping. Let's think about what they do. Notice Ephesians 5. Be filled with the Spirit. If you have both passages open where you can flip back and forth, it might help you. The corresponding phrase in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 is, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word of Christ is richly dwelling within the believer when the Spirit is filling him and moving him and shaping him. Right? There are many people that the word of God, quote unquote, comes to, may even reside in their mind. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 2? The natural man does not perceive the things or perceiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They are what to him? They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, and get this, because they're what? They're spiritually appraised. Without the Spirit, without the spiritual operation in the heart of a man, the Word of God that comes to him cannot be grasped in its fullness. Right? Why? Because I need the Spirit of God in order that the Word of God might come and dwell richly within me and form and shape me to move in certain ways. Now let's think about what those ways are. Back in Ephesians 5, when I'm filled with the Spirit, as opposed to being drunk with wine, which we're in is debauchery, all right? when I'm filled with the Spirit, the fact is that I'm going to be speaking to my brothers and sisters in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We can see here the context of worship, right? Where we mentioned back, what, a month or two ago, whenever I preached on Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, talking about the, 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 the use of psalms to admonish one another, right, in worship and in our conversation. 
Well, the corresponding text in Colossians 3 says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, Ephesians 5 simply says, speaking to one another. Colossians 3 is a great commentary. Um, Tom, you mentioned earlier the importance of interpreting Scripture. One of our principles for interpreting Scripture is we let Scripture do what? Interpret Scripture. Colossians 3 is a great text to help us expand. What do you mean, Paul, in Ephesians 5, when you say speaking to one another? I mean that with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching and admonishing. Ephesians 5 says speaking to. Colossians 3 says teaching and admonishing, but doing so with all wisdom. Well, one way this comes out in Ephesians chapter 5 is in song. Singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Colossians, the corresponding text, is singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Then he goes on in Ephesians chapter 5 and says, Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. In other words, you need to link in that giving thanks, and then there's the the prepositional phrase, for all things, and then another prepositional phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the final prepositional phrase, to the God, or to God, even the Father. Back up and just take that opening phrase, always giving thanks to God. Thankfulness in our hearts welling up to God. Or, as he says in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. In other words, it's not just that this is transformative and, and shaping in our worship, in the corporate context, it's also shaping in our living, in the way we live our lives, making us what? Thankful people to God. All right? So what we're trying to say here is that this, this gives a picture of what we called earlier the sanctifying and preparatory function here of the Scripture. It's forming and shaping us to be like Christ and worship our God. The sanctifying and preparatory work of the Spirit and Word, ultimately this brings us to a third and final stage, and that is satisfying fellowship. Swain says here that systematic theology seeks to promote fellowship with the object of theology, which is God himself. It is not, or is this not ultimately why God has spoken to begin with, to make himself known, to bring men to see his glory? Is this not the chief end of man? To what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Swain sums up this particular section in his book with this uh, word. He says, ultimately our fluency as readers of Holy Scripture and the formation, and our formation in Christian virtue, are ordered to this supreme end, and that is the triune God himself, who gives himself to us as our supreme good in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Or, as our own confession says, this doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our communion with God 
and our comfortable dependence on him. That's where the confession ends in chapter 2, paragraph 3. Now, we'll try to, Lord willing, unpack that more in several weeks, but um, that's where the confession's moving. It's interesting, in my, my own reading of the confession, there is a progression in chapter 2 from paragraph 1 to paragraph 2 to paragraph 3. This is where it's getting to is this ultimate end of communion with God. Now, with all that said, by way of introduction, it's my hope in the time we have left to unpack more fully the concept of scriptural fluency. Remember Swain's hope. He said, because systematic theology focuses on God and all things in relation to God, as these realities are revealed in Holy Scripture, systematic theology aims at making us more fluent readers of Holy Scripture. And for this, he says, we need basic grammar, or the basic grammar of Scripture's Trinitarian discourse. Now, we've got some time. Um, I want to go ahead and jump to the next section, but I want to also pause and see if we have some thoughts or some comments on something. It's a quiet group. All right. That's okay, I think. You know, it's like at home. When the kids are quiet, you don't know if this is good or bad. And I have this real suspicious mind as a parent. I'm thinking, oh, they're, they're devising a plan to take over the world upstairs. And it's going to start with Janice and I on a stick somewhere. And uh, so, okay. We'll just trust it's all as clear as mud, okay? So, Let's move to our next main section on your handout, and that's preparation for hearing the grammar, all right? We want to get to the grammar itself, but there's just a lot of throat clearing, I guess, that needs to happen kind of first. We're arguing first for kind of the, uh, the necessity of it, the importance of it, and here, how do we kind of prepare ourselves to hear the grammar, all right? Um, <clears throat> And here I'm going to focus on uh, Trinitarian revelation, Trinitarian fluency, and Trinitarian discourse. I'm trying to remember what your... Yeah, so this would be on the back page. Uh, this is the, uh, the top section, preparation for hearing the Bible's grammar. So let's think about these three things for just a moment. Trinitarian revelation is progressive. Now here, we briefly mention the New Testament's use of the Old. When we move from the text of the Old Testament to the New Testament, we're moving forward in what we sometimes call progressive revelation. All right? And this basically points to the nature of God revealing himself in a progressive fashion. He doesn't tell us everything just right up front. And in fact, by the time we get to the end of the Bible, we still don't know everything, all right? That remains for heaven and for eternity, and we will never, in that sense, know everything, but heaven will be the continual unfolding of the Lord to us. So as time moves on in the history of Revelation, as we move forward from Genesis to Revelation, more light is given. As we move from Old Covenant to New Covenant, there's a progression of Revelation. We expect in God making himself known and in revealing his redemptive plan that more light is being given as we move forward in 
the text. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We see this forward movement of God, this progressive unfolding of God's self-disclosure in Hebrews 1 and verses 1 to 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, etc., all the way down through verse 4. So first, in the Old Testament period, God spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In the Bible, the baptism class on Wednesday night, we've been going over a lot of different things with the kids. One of the things we've talked about are the books of the Bible and the sections of the books of the Bible and how the Old Testament, how it was written, and the New Testament, how it was written, all right? The Old Testament is written like over a period of almost like 1,500 years or so with like 40 different authors all contributing to these various parts of the Bible. There are books of history, law books. There are books of, uh, of, of, of the prophets coming in judgment. There's poetry there's apocalyptic type writing. We, we've noticed, even as Ryan's been preaching through the book of Daniel, a, a great variety, even in the 12 chapters of the book of Daniel, in the literary nature of the Bible. We have a lot of history, and then we have a lot of prophecy, apocalyptic dreams and visions, um, <clears throat> a lot of variety in the Old Testament there. The New Testament is written over a period of about maybe you know, 40 years or so. Uh, by a few men, uh, one of them writing probably almost you know, a third to half of it. And <clears throat> so when it says, he spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, that's, that's summing up in a very terse statement a whole lot of variety that happens in the Old Testament. But in the last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Not by a prophet. Remember, some people would, would, would say uh, that you know, Jesus must be a what? Must be a prophet. But he's not just a prophet. He is the prophet, the consummate prophet. He is one who is a son. Not son by adoption, but son by nature. We might say not son by grace, but son by nature. And as God moved from the period of the Old Covenant to the New, more light was being given. A clearer picture, picture is being drawn for all to see. So this Trinitarian, uh, this, uh, this Trinitarian revelation is progressive. So as we study the grammar of the Bible, as we study texts in the Bible, we're going to expect and anticipate as we read texts maybe in the New Testament, they're going to help us do what? Understand some of those texts that are written in the Old Testament. And you might sit there and say, well, duh, yeah, sure, that's pretty clear. Well, you might be interested to know uh, everybody doesn't feel that way. Uh, there are some, even with our own Reformed tradition, that would come along and say that you can't use later revelation to interpret earlier revelation. If we can't use later revelation to interpret earlier revelation, we're sunk, all right? <laughs> what are you going to do with a lot of the Bible? Yeah, and... Uh, 
well, what are you going to do with a lot of the Old Testament? Because what is the New Testament? Often but the apostles preaching from the Old Testament, giving a new covenant perspective on that Old Covenant text. Yeah, yeah, what, what do you do? Philip finds him in the chariot. Who am I reading? Well, it's a bummer, man. I can't use any new revelation to help you with that old revelation. Good luck, all right? And so, oh my goodness, yeah, exactly. Well, second, Trinitarian fluency is a process. I think I have on here for you this little, little diagram. Uh, is it there? Yes, okay. Think about this for a moment. Old Testament Trinitarian sketches lead to New Testament Trinitarian portraits leading us to ecclesial praise. Let's think about this for a moment. That which begins in the Old Testament as sketched or sketched out in unfinished lines, it is to be later picked up by the writers of the New Testament filled out and drawn in full. Now we're kind of hinting at that there with Philip and the eunuch. This is then followed by the church, and it's expressed in praise. Swain says this. He says, oftentimes taking up the express language of the Old Testament, the New Testament draws more definitive lines and portraits only sketched in Old Testament text. Consider, for example... A brief comparison between Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and John 1, 1 to 3. Listen to Genesis 1, 1 to 3. You're probably pretty familiar with this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. What's happening there? Well, we're not left to really guess. John 1, 1 to 3 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now think about a few ways that John fills in the sketch, just in these two texts. Where Genesis has God and the Spirit of God present, John adds the presence of the Word. Where in Genesis, God's speech is his own, in John, the very speech is a person, it is the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where Genesis points to God as creator, John emphasizes the person of the Word as the creator God. The broader context of John goes so far as to tell us who this word is, Jesus, the Son of God. There we're using a later text to give a more full picture of a earlier, an earlier text. Now, a lot more could be said about those two texts in comparison than just the four observations we had here. Consider a third thing. Trinitarian discourse is patterned. It's patterned. Um, the diagram here we have is it's sourced, normed, and it's patterned by Scripture. Let's see if these uh, can be uh, fleshed out a little bit. The first two of these were introduced last time. Well, for us, 
Uh, it's, we talked about it last week, and we talked about it this week as well. The Scripture serves as the ultimate source for our Trinitarian speech and ultimately will norm the standard, the rule of our speech as well. Um, <clears throat> let's think about a couple of texts. 2 Timothy 1.13 and Romans 6.17. 2 Timothy 1.13 says this. Paul to Timothy Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The standard, right? The form of sound words. Romans 6, 17, Paul of the Romans. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, we've already seen the apostles are taking, <coughs> excuse me, they're already taking Old Testament ideas, Old Testament sketches, and they're filling them out more as they come in this New Covenant revelation. Swain says, Scriptural Trinitarianism retains its status as primary Trinitarian discourse in the sense that the Bible's Trinitarian discourse is Trinitarian theology's normative pattern for fluent, well-formed Trinitarian praise, its grammar, its lexicon, its syntax, everything else is commentary. You read that again, it's kind of a mouthful there. He says, scriptural Trinitarianism retains its status as primary Trinitarian discourse in the sense that the Bible's Trinitarian discourse is Trinitarian theology's normative pattern. What's the normative pattern? What the Bible says. What the Bible is saying about God, that's the normative pattern. That's what's going to that's what's going to shape and mold our own formulations of doctrine and which will then shape our praise. So in other words, we need to go to the Bible itself, all right? Now, what I want to do here is just introduce uh, the three things that are on your sheet, and then we'll come back and talk about those, um, Lord willing, next time. So with everything else being commentary, our pursuit of Trinitarian grammar must begin with the Bible, right? I want to learn about the Trinity, right? I want to know about God being triune. Well, what have they said in church history? Uh, what have they said here? What has this guy said or whatever? What Swain's trying to say is the place to start is looking at the Bible. Now, we took a long way to introduce kind of getting us to this point, but he wants to get us to the actual text of the Bible, all right? So Matthew 28, 19. We're going to use this as a focal text. We're going to look at a lot of passages over the next several weeks uh, to, to try to help shape our own grammar. And I think, I'm fairly sure, um, for most of us, you might have some moments where you're like, oh, I never knew the Bible said that about that. I never knew the Bible actually commented on those kinds of things, right? Um, just by looking at its basic grammar. 
So if you have Matthew 28, 19, this is the focal text. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, with this text alone, we find several patterns for use in sketching out our Trinitarian discourse, which will help us become more fluent in the Bible, all right? Uh, in unpacking the patterns for the discourse that we want to, uh, want to focus on, the Trinitarian discourse, there are, there are three, and they're listed for you on your sheet. Let me just kind of highlight them for us. Pattern number one, the Bible's Trinitarian discourse consistently affirms the existence of the one God. And from this, or for this, we're going to take the, the text in Matthew 28, 19, where he tells them to go forth and baptize in the name. It's important that we, we, we realize that they're not to go and baptize in the names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It is one name. God is rightly named God. God by nature alone is God. God as self-interpreted God. Now we're going to unpack that in the coming weeks. A second pattern that we might notice here also is this. The Bible's Trinitarian discourse consistently identifies the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the one God. It's the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Here we're going to see that this is the name of the Father. In other words, the name, we're going to follow this throughout Scripture and look at this and, 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 and come to see, I think fairly clearly, that the name of God is kind of biblical shorthand for the old covenant name of God, Yahweh, the covenant God. What this means is, is that the Father is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, and the Spirit is Yahweh. We don't typically think like that. Most Christians I meet think of the Father as Yahweh, but the Son and the Spirit are not. And in fact, all kinds of debates in church have, you know, <laughs> kind of been, uh, it's, a, it's a bloody battlefield to argue for the Son and the Spirit both being Yahweh. Um, <clears throat> all my preparations I was making over the last month or so for what I did last week in Willis uh, had to do with these things in relationship to the Spirit. Uh, think of the Nicene Creed, that the Spirit is to be glorified, worshipped together with the Father and the Son. Um, a third pattern. The Bible's Trinitarian discourse consistently identifies the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by their mutual relations, which are relations of origin, the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We'll find these relations to be mutual, asymmetrical, and then we'll kind of end with an illustration of them. So we're going to try to unpack that phrase in Matthew 28, 19, utilizing a variety of other texts 
the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and from that, we will build a grammar, a vocabulary, all right, um, a, a, a syntax, and, and understand how we can use those basic building blocks of our theology to then formulate systematic theological conclusions about God, which will then shape how we worship God. And so that's kind of where we're, 